If you would, turn with me to Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. That's where we will behold and and contemplate the beauty and wonder of God in his word this morning. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. So what has God called you to be? What has he called you to do? This is a pretty normal question in in the Christian world, isn't it? What is it that God has called me to be? What has he called me to do? And oftentimes we can wrestle with this idea of what is it that God wants me specifically to do and and be. And, And oftentimes that can specifically work out for each of us in different ways. But ultimately, what God has called us to be and what he has called us to do is the same great work. And I think our passage this morning helps us to see what that is. Let's briefly consider some context here. We remember that the message of Mark is about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, what Mark says at the very beginning, who has come to establish and inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. He stepped out of heaven and he's come to earth to set up the kingdom of God. And in fact, we just saw this very clearly last time in Mark 13. Remember, we looked at the whole chapter at once, and and there we see Jesus describing his establishing of the kingdom of God on earth. It's It's a now reality in that the old covenant age has passed away, the old has passed away, and the new age of salvation has come. But he also described a reality that's not yet. The the present earth will all pass away and a new heaven and new earth will come with the kingdom of God in its fullness. And, And so Jesus is reigning on the throne in heaven right now and we still await the fullness of his kingdom to come. And Jesus just described all of this to his disciples and and he 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 summed it up with this great reality that you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. The old age passing away, the new age coming. The kingdom of God in its fullness. Now, Mark, So Mark is wanting to build some anticipation here. All of this wonderful, terrible reality that, that we uh, see in Mark 13, it's going to happen and for the disciples and everyone following Jesus, that question worrying in the back of their mind is, is, as we saw them ask, is when and how? When, how? Well, Jesus and, and now Mark is going to show us the when and the how. And what, what becomes clear is that the end of all things and the beginning of all things new ties directly to the cross. And here in Mark 14, 1 through 11, we find ourselves, again, in the final week of Jesus' life, approaching closer and closer to the cross. So the thrust is this, Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God, will usher in God's kingdom, and it will be through the cross. Therefore, the kingdom of God, Jesus' work as the Messiah, and our worship, which will be key for us today, Our worship of him cannot be separated from the cross. Look with me at Mark 14, 1 through 11. I'll read it in full. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, 
and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, we did a big sweep in Mark 13, looked at the big picture, and I, I love doing that. But now we're looking at a smaller portion, verses 1 through 11 of 14, and we're going to look at it in more detail, and that's wonderful too. Uh, so first, if you've been following along with us, uh, you're probably familiar by now of, of Mark's pattern. So a little word on structure here. Mark has made another another sandwich for us here in the sense that he began this narrative with a particular story, interrupted it with another one, and then ends it with another similar story to the one he began it with. So first in verses 1 through 2, we see the religious leaders, they're doing what? They're plotting to kill Jesus. Well, then in verses 10 through 11, we see Judas joining in on that plot to help it become a reality. Those are the two bookends here. And, and, and the, the takeaway is they both parties here desire to eliminate Jesus. And then right in the middle of that, in verses 3 through 9, we have a picture of an act of pure devotion to Jesus. And it's all going to work together to force upon us uh, a, a couple of questions. First, what is Jesus' worth? And second, what does his worth then demand from us? So there's going to be four characters and groups of characters here, and, and they're all going to make an appraisal of Jesus' worth. You can think of, uh, of an appraiser. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those uh, antique shows before where someone brings in an, an item that's been buried in the basement, and, and they say, I don't know, how much is this worth? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's probably 100 bucks. I'm sorry, it's nothing worth. Someone else brings in something else, and I'll, how much is this? I don't know. And you hear the big sum, that's actually an original, it's a million dollars, right? Here we have something similar going on. Each one of these characters is making an appraisal of Jesus' worth. The chief priests and the scribes and the judge, they're going to see Jesus and appraise his worth. Judas sees Jesus and is going to appraise his worth. This woman is going to make an appraisal of Jesus' worth. And finally, those who witness the woman's actions are going to do the same. And each one is going to act in accordance to how they appraise Jesus' worth. And since the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas 
And their themes in each of their scenes form two, the two bookends of this narrative. We're going to take them together first. So our outline will look like this. In part one, we'll look at verses 1 through 2 and verses 10 through 11. And we see Jesus' worth is less than me and mine. And then part two, verses 3 through 9, we will see Jesus is, Jesus is worthy of my greatest work, worship. So by answering the questions, what is Jesus worth and, and what does his worth demand, I believe that Mark offers us an answer to our primary question. What has God called you to do? What has he called you to be? What is the greatest work that you can do as a Christian? And our answer uh, is our main message, and it's no secret. God has called you to be a worshiper of him, a worshiper who proclaims the gospel and who adorns your worship and your gospel proclamation with beautiful gospel works of worship. So look with me at part 1, verses 1 through 2 and 10 and 11. Jesus is worth less than me and mine. I'll read those verses again. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So before we look at the connections here, uh, first uh, of what ties these together, first notice in verses in verse 1, Mark gives a timestamp. Now, this is a little different for, for Mark. In, in the other Gospels, you'll often see timestamps given... Uh, that is tracking when this happened in Jesus' ministry. Now, we know that Jesus' ministry lasted for three years, and this is not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. This isn't the first time he celebrated Passover. But here, Mark chooses to tell us, he goes, he breaks pattern with what he does, has done in the, so far, and he says, this is two days before the Passover. So it catches our attention. Why does he highlight this one? Well, we know that the history of the Passover is that when God's people, Israel, were in Egypt, in bondage, and God was delivering them, he sent plagues upon Egypt, and then the final plague was the angel of death that swept through and killed the firstborn son in the land. In the land. Every firstborn son. But God's people sacrificed a Passover lamb and put the blood over their house. And when the angel passed by and saw the blood... It passed by the houses, Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb, and they, in God's judgment, passed by his people. This is the history, and then they, the great exodus, right? So Mark tells us where we are in the, his, in the timeline of Jewish celebration here. The people, tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people have gathered into Jerusalem to celebrate this great Passover feast, to remember when God delivered them. Through the blood of the Lamb. That's the timeline of where we are in history right now. But we're also, this is also the point we are at in redemptive history because we know that this Passover Lamb actually pointed to Jesus, the true Passover Lamb. And so while everybody else is preparing on a Tuesday for Passover, which will be on a Thursday, 
preparing to sacrifice their Passover lamb. Here we see the chief priests and the scribes, they too are planning to kill a lamb. They're planning to kill who is the true Passover lamb. So Mark is telling us right where we are in redemptive history. This is where all of history has been going towards. This is where the kingdom of God has been headed. The killing of Jesus, the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb. The chief priests, the scribes and Pharisees, they are seeking to kill Jesus in verse 1. And that's our key word, seeking. It's our connection between verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. In verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and scribes are seeking to kill. And in verses 10 and 11, what is Judas doing? He joins the religious leader's plot, who are overjoyed. And now he is seeking, same word, an opportunity to betray Jesus. Mark clearly wants us to see these two scenes together. So how do these two scenes and the religious leader's and, and Judas mutually interpret one another, and then what can we learn from what's happening in the middle in contrast to that? Ultimately, what we will see is that both parties, the religious leaders and Judas, see Jesus as worth less than themselves and what they can get without him. So verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they judge Jesus's worth as less than themselves and their status. We know this from what we've seen in Mark. The religious leaders want to destroy Jesus because they perceive him as a threat to their authority and they don't want to lose the people. They don't want to lose a status with the people. This is why they're seeking to do it by stealth and by deceit. The reason is in verse 2. For they said to themselves, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the, their, their, their desire to get rid of Jesus has always been tied hand in hand with their desire to keep their influence over the people. We see this in, in Mark eleven eighteen. 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because why? All the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And like, likewise in Mark 12, 12, they are seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. So their desire to get rid of Jesus is always tied to their desire to maintain their status and authority and maintain the people. Now, they've made an appraisal of Jesus' worth, and their appraisal is this. He is worth less than me, and my status, my reputation, my authority, he is worth less than me and mine. And when their appraisal of Jesus' worth, it, it doesn't lead to passivity. They don't just ignore him. It leads to them trying to actively eliminate him from their lives. Now consider Judas in verses 10 and 11. Judas also looks at Jesus and comes to the same conclusion. Jesus is worth less than me and mine. Verses 10 and 11, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas Goes to the chief priests and scribes for a purpose. He went in order to betray him to them. And why did, Jesus, why did Judas do this? 
Now, this is a, there's much theological discussion about what all went into this act, and there's no small degree of speculation. But one thing that Scripture makes abundantly clear, one element that is an undeniable marker that, that played a role in Judas's actions is his love for money and greed. John tells us in the parallel account, by all likelihood the parallel account in John 12, 1 through 8, uh, that Judas was a thief who used to take money out of the money bag that he had charge over. This is what motivated his criticism of Mary when she anointed Jesus. So we also know that he was ultimately paid 30 pieces of silver, and here Mark simply tells us that they promised to give him money. So Judas's appraisal of Jesus' worth is this, in part at least. Judas is worth less than me and my material wealth and my financial security, my money. Jesus is worth less than monetary treasures of this earth. So if Jesus is, is not the greatest treasure of our lives, what we see here is we will ultimately find ourselves doing everything we can to eliminate him. It may start off simply enough at first, but ultimately we will seek to destroy and to kill and to eliminate him from our lives as he encroaches upon our true treasures. And if our status or our position or our money is our greatest treasure, we will seek to eliminate Jesus. And perhaps it's put even into sharper focus by Judas's actions because we live in a place, in a time, in a culture where materialism and money define identity, right? But if we love money, if we love things more than Jesus, we will seek to kill him from our lives. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's harder for us to see it when we're in a society that is, it's just, we're inundated with it. We have to keep eyes open to this reality. If we appraise Jesus, Jesus' worth as less than anything else, we will ultimately kill him off from our lives. But if our appraisal of Jesus' worth matches that of the woman's, in verses 3 through 9, we will worship. Look with me at part 2, verses 3 through 9. Jesus is worthy of my greatest work. Here we are in the, the meat of Mark's sandwich, right? So if we're if appraising Jesus' worth as less than self and mind leads to eliminating him, this is what it, the opposite looks like. If we appraise Jesus' worth as more than anything, it will lead to worship. Look at verses, verse 3. And while he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
So we're in Bethany. Remember, Jesus and his disciples have been going back and forth between Jerusalem and and staying in Bethany. And here we see he's at a dinner party being hosted by Simon the leper. Now, who is this? Well, we don't really know, but perhaps it's a leper that Jesus has healed throughout his ministry sometime when he's been in Jerusalem previously. Uh, He's likely distinguished for a couple of reasons, because Simon was a popular name at this time, so Simon the leper distinguishes him, but also, perhaps Mark's audience knows who this is, Simon the leper. Oh, yeah, I've I've heard this story. Mark's uh, and Matthew's parallel account, uh, we know that the disciples are present, and it's very likely that uh, this is, that John also records this account in John 12, and that this woman is Mary, Lazarus's sister. But let's just take a look at this for a moment. Mark's purpose here is to set up a scene while he was at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, suddenly in walks a woman. It would have been noticeable. Everybody's relaxing and eating and in comes this woman. Everybody would have taken notice. And like we said, it, it could be Mary, but Mark isn't interested in identifying who she is. Why? Because, because Mark's main goal is to highlight what it is, what it is she does and who she's doing it for. This is what defines all of her actions. Jesus himself is going to say at the end that what she has done will be told in memory of her. And and here, we're talking about it today, fulfilling this prophecy as we proclaim the gospel. And yet, Mark doesn't include her name because what what defines her actions? It's not her. It's the object of her worship. You and I do not define our work or our worship as a Christian. Jesus is the only one who defines what we do, and he defines our worship. His name will be remembered. So what does she do? It's no small thing. Mark notes that she brings with her an an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And what does she do with it? Well, I wonder what the witnesses are thinking. They probably see her walking in verses. Why is she walking in all of a sudden with this? Oh, perhaps she's going to give it to Jesus as as a gift. So it probably would have been a shock what she does next. And we see it is. It creates quite a stir. Verse 3, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So Mark's the only one who notes that, that she breaks this flask. And, and as Cody said at the beginning, this, this ointment is, as we see later in the passage, is, is worth a, a year's wages. Pure nard, it's an aromatic perfume. But, but we don't have to be an, an expert or a peddler of essential oils to kind of gather what Mark is saying here. This isn't, this isn't a one of the little... Vials of, uh, of frankincense that you use, or like, I like the thieves, right? But uh, this is a flask that has been imported, likely from India. And, and Mark simply says it was costly. 
Now, this, this word costly, it means what you think, expensive, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture uh, describing precious gems and, and precious jewels or uh, uh, a wife who is more precious than jewels. It's costly. It's precious. And here Mark notes that she broke it. So somehow its, its contents were sealed in this alabaster flask. That means not only is it precious, not only is it pure, as Mark notes, unadulterated, genuine, expensive, but it's also unused. It hasn't been used. And if she's breaking the lid off, she doesn't plan on saving any of it. She's using it all in this moment. This isn't merely a dab. I don't know if you've seen some movies before that portray this. And I saw one recently, and it has her like kind of dabbing on us. No, it says she pours it over him. It's running down. Jesus says in verse 8, she's anointed, not my head, she's anointed my body. This is running down him. The dinner party that is likely already silent and curious by what she's doing here would, would be stunned. This isn't inconspicuous. This isn't secret. This is very public. Just consider the contrast of her attitude toward Jesus with, with the religious leaders who were deceptively and secretly trying to... There's nothing secret about this. She walks in. You can't walk in and secretly break off the lid of an alabaster flask and and secretly pour it over Jesus' head. No, this is a public, public proclamation of who she thinks Jesus is. And everyone would have noticed. It'd be kind of like if you've ever been in a restaurant, everybody's just kind of enjoying their meal and then you see this couple over there, oh, they're, they're a nice couple, they look good. And then all of a sudden, the guy gets up and he goes down to a knee and he gets ready to propose. And everybody in the restaurant, and you hear the clink, 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 and it just stops and everybody's looking. And it grabs everybody's attention. Perhaps it would have been like this, but it would have been maybe the awkward moment of when she says no, right? Because this would be a little awkward, seeing the oil run down. I just imagine the discomfort. Of what's going on here. Everyone stops and stares. And this oil is drenching him. This aromatic perfume filling the air. And what we know is what Jesus says. Is that it's the fragrance that will anoint him at his burial. The fragrance. Very fragrance of his death. What's going on? And Jesus will tell us. Ultimately though what we see is that this woman has also made an appraisal. Of Jesus' worth. She is determined that he's worth even more than my reputation before other people and what they may think of me. He's worth even more than the most precious gift I would have. To her, Jesus is worth this public act of devotion and this act of worship, worth looking foolish for. This woman's action yields two responses, one from those who witness it and one from Jesus himself. Look at verses 4 through 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So, Matthew notes that these uh, indignant witnesses were the disciples. Their reaction here actually points to their appraisal of Jesus' worth, doesn't it? On the surface, they at least think that Jesus is worth less than the oil. 
They, they see Jesus and say this is wasted on him. But digging deeper, we see that what they truly believe as well is that Jesus is, that Jesus is worth less than their own works. So they say, why was this ointment wasted? They believe it's a waste of perfume. This is uh, a word that we can also translate as destruction or destroyed. They, they see this oil and I go, well, that was destroyed. That was a waste. They believe it was a waste of this costly, pure perfume. So we see they at least believe that Jesus is worth less than the expensive perfume. But look at their reason, verse 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, that's the year's wages, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So you can almost cut the smug self-righteousness with a knife in this scene, right? They publicly admonish and scold this woman. Step back for a moment and consider what they're actually doing. They scold this woman for worshiping the Messiah. And think, in the back of their mind, I could have done something better than that. This is the double danger of self-righteousness. Not only does self-righteousness harm ourselves by us looking at the works of our hands and saying, oh, this is so much better than Jesus. Look what I do and worshiping our own works. But self-righteousness will not stay to self. It will actually do harm and attack and thrust labor and toil, as we will see, upon others who are simply worshiping Jesus purely from faith. Self-righteousness never keeps to itself. Their disposition, again, it, it betrays their undervaluing of Jesus. They look at Jesus, they've appraised his worth, and they believe that Jesus is worth less than their works. And Jesus will correct them. Look at verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So the ESV translates this phrase, leave her alone. That's, that's a pretty good translation here. Leave her alone. That's what Jesus says. Leave her alone. Why? Because you are thrusting trouble, labor, toil. That's the idea here. You're putting the, the toil and labor that you think you're doing that's so right. You're thrusting it upon her. It's unnecessary. And what's Jesus' reason for the rebuke? This is his reason. She has done a beautiful thing to me. And this word thing, let's talk about it for a second, occurs 169 times in the New Testament. This passage and in the parallel passage in Matthew is the only time we translate it as thing, in the ESV at least. But a far better translation for this word is work, deed, where you see those. That's what this word is. 
So what's Jesus saying? She has done a beautiful work for me. Here they are thinking, oh, I could have done such a better work. And Jesus says, this is the most beautiful work that could have been done. It's a work. So why is her work beautiful and seemingly the right choice compared to the disciples' work that they suggested? It's because this woman has appraised Jesus' worth correctly. That's what drives and that's what defines her actions here. The, the disciples, they witness this woman's work and they scold her for wasting this oil saying, saying she could have done a better work. And Jesus says, you think that this woman has not done a good work or even a gospel work? You are sorely mistaken. This is a work, a beautiful work she has done. And he goes on to explain in verse 7, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Jesus ties her work to who he is and what he came to do. The nature of who he is and the nature of his mission. This woman's work is a good and better work because she did it unto Jesus who will be crucified, who will be buried, who will rise again. And it's beautiful because she has rightly judged his worth. And the witnesses have missed it. Jesus is days away from his crucifixion. And this woman moved by love for adoration of devotion to Jesus worships him in this way. While her critics can only think of another way to get a self-righteous notch on their belts. Now this isn't to say that an act of charity or giving to the poor is, is wrong, but they could give to the poor all day long. But if it is not coming from a place of worship for who Jesus is and done with the aim of worshiping who he is, it's nothing. So Jesus' reproval of his disciples and his affirmation of the woman ultimately makes clear that what this woman has done in her worship is the most appropriate and important work, and it's the only thing that true work actually flows out of. And Jesus ties it directly to the gospel. Look at verses 8 through 9. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So Jesus, Jesus says here, she has done what she could. Now that can sound our ears like a little thing, right? But we obviously know from this scene, this isn't a little thing. Uh, the, a literal translation would be this. What she had, she did. What she had, she did. So there's no telling how long her or her family have held on to this expensive perfume, unused, right? What were they saving it for? But once this woman knew who Jesus was, once she saw his worth, his beauty, 
as Cody said earlier this morning in our adult course seminar, to her, this wasn't a sacrifice. This was joy to come in and give to Christ something that God had given to her that was so precious. And in performing this act by faith in who Jesus was, what Jesus says is that she performs a work that's more than what she even bargained for. All through Mark, most recently, Jesus has been saying, predicting his death, his burial, his resurrection, but nobody has gotten it. That's the one thing Mark has made clear. Nobody has understood it quite what that means. But here in an act of pure worship by this woman who likely doesn't know that he's going to die either, Jesus says that she's actually anointed my body for burial. Her work from faith and from worship at joy at who Jesus was is actually a literal gospel work. Anointing the body of Jesus. And so, it wasn't the woman or the oil that ultimately defined her work. It was Jesus and what he would do. When our work flows out of and aims to worship of God and who he is, every work is a gospel work. This woman is the opposite of the rich young man we saw in Mark 10, right? And, and this is a good way to relate the two points here because what does Jesus tell the rich young man in, in Mark 10? He says, take all you have, sell it, and give to the poor. Well, this, sound, this is maybe ringing in the disciples' ears as they think, hey, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be given to the poor. But what was the reason, what would have been the motivation for him to give to the poor? Remember what Jesus said to him? Give, sell all you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. That rich young man would have to see in Jesus a treasure of more value than anything he had. And that's what would make his selling to the poor a good gospel work. But he didn't see that in Jesus and he left sad. But this woman sees in Jesus treasure greater than anything she has. She's very likely Mary sitting at Jesus's feet, who's chosen the better portion than Martha, as we've heard read this morning. So if this woman doesn't look like that rich man or Martha or Judas or the religious leaders, even the disciples, who does she look like? There's only one other person in this scene that she resembles. And that's Jesus who performed the greatest act of obedient worship in order to serve you and me to ransom our lives. This woman poured out this expensive ointment, this perfume, but Jesus poured out his precious blood upon us. That, the fragrance of that ointment filled the room, but we have the very fragrance of Christ upon us, an aroma pleasing to God. We had looked at our lives and our stuff and we looked at our works and we said, it's better, worth more than God. And we traded life for death, God for everything else. 
And so Jesus came bearing life in himself, the greatest treasure, and poured out his life on the cross so that we could be what? Forgiven and made worshipers of God once again. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom in obedience to the Father to save you and me. And for all those who look on, they say that's a waste, that's folly. But the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Through this act of Jesus pouring out his life, we can truly be worshipers again. And so this is our gospel application this morning. We've seen that Jesus is first, either your greatest threat or your greatest treasure. If he is your greatest threat, there's no in-between. If he is a threat to you, you will ultimately seek to eliminate him from your life. Or you will shape him in such a way that he is no longer the God you should worship, but one who worships you and what you do. But if he is your greatest treasure, you will not seek to eliminate him. You will be like this woman and you will seek him. You will seek him. To worship him. You say, well, I don't do that. Well, perfectly. Well, welcome to being human, right? Sinful humans. This is sanctification. As we surrender to Christ, there will surely be flesh and sin in our heart that barricades itself in and makes strongholds. That's why this is a daily seeing Christ as worth more than anything else. And as he is invading and conquering territories of our hearts daily that are strongholds, that we're like, I didn't even know that was there. He's inviting us to join in on that. And that's what a life of worship is. This is our second application point. You are called to be a worshiper of God. This is your first and greatest gospel work. This is what you were made for and saved for. Now, remember, the, the crowds asked Jesus, we heard it read in John 6, 28, they said to him, what must, we be do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said simply, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. To believe in Jesus is not just intellectual sin. We know that to believe in him is to treasure him and to worship him. This is the work of God. You were Saved, you were made to be a worshiper of God, and this leads to more gospel works of worship. So, you were, point three, you were called to be a worshiper of God who proclaims the gospel. Essential to your gospel work of worship is gospel proclamation. Just think of what we do in here together. We proclaim the gospel in our singing, we proclaim it in our prayers, we, we we preach it and speak it to one another. This is essential to our worship. This woman's work was a gospel work of worship. That's what made it beautiful. And this is what the church was established for. John 4.23 But the hour is coming and is now here when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what enables and characterizes our worship. You are called to be a worshiper of God who proclaims the gospel. This is our, leads to our fourth and final gospel application point. In this way, your very life is worship. So you do what you can. What you have, do. Call to mind what this woman did. She did a very specific act. She took and poured out her greatest possession unto Jesus in the joy of who, at who he was. This is a pointer to what Jesus did, but it's also what we now do in the name of the kingdom. We pour out our lives to Jesus. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we consider then, what is it that God has given me? What has he entrusted me with? What gifts? What relationships? What is he, how has he positioned me now in order to return what he has given me back to him because I see him as worth more than anything else? Your entire life is worship. And this means every work you do, when done from a place of treasuring Jesus at the joy of who he is, turns into worship back to God. As you serve one another, as we serve one another and seek to reach the lost with gospel proclamation, worship is happening. And so, in this way, we say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 through 17, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. When you live a life of worship, when Jesus is your treasure, when he is your greatest joy, your very life is an aroma pleasing to God. The religious leaders, and they, they thought they were happy. Remember, it said they were glad when Judas came to tell them that he would betray Jesus. They don't even know what real joy is. The greatest treasure, the greatest joy right in front of their eyes. Inviting us into a life of worship. You were called to be a worshiper of God who proclaims the gospel in worship and adorns your worship and your gospel proclamation with gospel works of worship. So what is the greatest work we can do as Christians? It's worship. The gospel of Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through his church, it is in this way, worshiping in spirit and in truth, that the church will advance upon the gates of hell and and, and hell will not withstand it. You're called to be a worshiper of God. This is your greatest work. Let's pray together.